Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host of Bookspeed's Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. Now, all master storytellers will probably tell you that the first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader. Today, we have the honor of talking with best-selling and beloved author Daniel Handler, who you might also know by another name, Lemony Snicket, about his most recent book, Poison for Breakfast, published by Live Right, just in time for Great Fall Reading. Although Daniel Handler is also a musician, he's best known for his children's series, a series of unfortunate events and all the wrong questions published under the pseudonym Lemony Snicket which you might have binge-watched at some point on Netflix. Handler lives here in San Francisco and has published adult novels and a stage play under his real name, along with other children's books under the Snicket pseudonym. His first book, a satirical fiction piece titled The Basic Eight, was rejected by many publishers for its dark subject matter, which actually we might get into a little bit later on the podcast here. Handler has also played the accordion in several bands and appeared on the album 69 Love Songs by Love by indie pop band The Magnetic Fields. Daniel Handler, what a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to page one. Uh, Well, thank you. It's a delight to be here. (laughs) This is going to be really fun today. And Daniel and I had a conversation earlier this week, and we're onto something special today during this recording. Last week, I announced an open submission for aspiring authors who'd like to share the first page of their book and get a little supportive feedback from one of page one's master storytellers, because we know that writing is definitely an act of courage and courage needs a community. So that's one of the things that I want to create here uh, through the podcast. And today that very courageous author is Hillary Hamilton. And we'll hear from her at the end of this episode as Daniel shares some quick thoughts about the first page of her book called Boobs. But for now, let's get back to poison and adventures and lemony <laughs> snicket philosophy. <laughs> um, get to so, boobs in a minute. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll, get to, we'll get to boobs in just a small <laughs> minute. So Daniel, I'd like to share your new book summary with our listeners because sure. we avoid all spoilers on page one and we're here to discuss your first page. So everyone who's listening, just pretend you're holding the book right now. I'm going to flip it to its back cover. And I have it right here. And if you're driving, clearly pay attention. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. Close your eyes. (laughs) So Poison for Breakfast is a new standalone adventure, and it's appropriate for all ages by Lemony Snicket, who in the course of his long and very suspicious career has investigated many things, including villainy, treachery, conspiracy, boredom, and various suspicious fires. But in this book, he's investigating his own death. Now, Poison for Breakfast is quite possibly different from any book you've ever read. And I can't skip over the note to the reader on the back cover, which in a way is a preamble to the first page of this book. And Daniel, do you want to read that or do you want me to read it? I can I mean, read it, I guess. Yes, if you can please read that. I mean, you are, after all, Lemony Snicket. I'd like to hear yeah. it in your voice. This is my gig. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dear reader. Are you confused? Do you have any idea what is going on? Of course you are, and of course you don't. This book is about bewilderment, a word which here means not having the faintest idea what is going on at any given time. It is also something of a murder mystery in which a dreadful crime is investigated in the hopes of finding out what happened to the poor murdered victim. The person investigating is me. So is the poor murdered victim. The clues in this investigation include a suspicious stranger, an upsetting supermarket, the strange way literature is made, painful embarrassment, long songs, improperly prepared eggs, and other things which I happen to think are important. Some people might call Poison for Breakfast a book of philosophy, and hardly anyone likes a book of philosophy. When a person begins to investigate this bewildering world and their own inevitable death, they begin to suffer from a deeply troubling kind of bewilderment experienced by anyone foolish enough to love literature. Unless you are that sort of person, I recommend reading something else entirely. With all due respect, Lemony Snicket. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for that warning, Lemony Snicket. Yeah, can you tell us more, Daniel? Will you read the actual first manuscript page of Poison for Breakfast? I will. It's so funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it dawns on you. Well, it's the page one podcast. (laughs) 
Should I read the first manuscript page, even if it stops mid-sentence? Is that the rule? Of the uh, no, you can, you can, you can, can like finish that sentence. Yeah, okay. you can go over. And the reason I wanted you to do that is because for anyone who's aspiring as an author and they're listening to this, often the first page of what they write is the first thing that an agent or anyone else is going to read. And it still has to work really hard to do the first thing for that audience. But I'm always curious, the author is always so aware of what is going on that page. And then there's the, of course, the interior layout decisions, which cuts what you actually wanted to be the actual real first page, which is the manuscript page. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say all of the iterations of a work of literature are small disappointments to the imaginary vision that you have in your head when you first are thinking about a book, right? When you first think about a book, that's the glorious time because it's all possibility and nothing exists yet. Right, because so it's not, get to the chopping block, right? Yeah, and so not only the kind of layout on the page that can do things that you didn't think of when you finished the text, but kind of all of the iterations of the text, all of the edits that you do, whether someone asks you to do them or whether you do them yourself. And just because you mentioned people early in their writing careers who might be listening, and that that is an eternal heartbreak, no matter what kind of level of success or community you find when you're writing, nothing you write is ever as good as you want it to be. And I think it's important to remember that, that it isn't just kind of, oh, the publisher, and then it shrinks down, but it's always like your own glorious imagination. And then its manifestation is always a little less than you want. Well, this is perfect. We'll circle back to the very line here in what you just read, which is the strange way literature is made. And we're going to discuss that because we're going to unpack it. We're going to unpack process and really kind of dive deep into the combination of these unbelievable little tools called letters and words that we sort through and agonize over to create an experience. I know, it's amazing. You think to yourself, oh, there's so many choices, but there's really not that many. Right. Six choices, really. Right, absolutely, (laughs) exactly. But how extraordinary that those 26 choices, 26 letters create such a unique output among everyone who attempts this. It's pretty incredible. So having said that, let's dive in. I want to hear this first manuscript page. This morning I had poison for breakfast. This book is about bewilderment, a word which here means the feeling of being bewildered. And bewildered is a word which here means you don't have any idea what is happening. And you is a word which doesn't just mean you. It means everyone. You have no idea what is happening and nobody you know has any idea what is happening. And of course, there are all the people you don't know which is most of the people in the world. And they don't know what is happening either. And of course, I don't know what is happening or I wouldn't have eaten poison for breakfast. (laughs) Everything that happens in this book is true, by which I mean that it all really happened. The poison and the poems, the deadly cactus and the hypnotic musician, the chicken and the egg and the fatal finale, a phrase which here means there is death at the end of the story. But the story begins at breakfast, which I fix myself as I enjoy doing. It won't be necessary for you to remember what I had for breakfast because I will keep mentioning it, but it was tea with honey, a piece of toast with cheese, one sliced pear, and an egg perfectly prepared. And all of it, as I have mentioned, I fixed myself and ate all up while reading whatever I pleased. It's fantastic. Thank you. Oh, man. Okay, so... There's so much to get into here. And I know that these podcast episodes go so fast. And I wish I had four hours to talk to you. That's what everyone wants, a four-hour podcast. (laughs) Exactly, right? You're like, oh, God. Yeah. So having said that, getting just diving right into this, obviously, my job here is to look at the first page. But I couldn't help but read the entire book. Because for those of you listening, this is a really different book than what you might expect or have experienced from a Lemony Snicket book. And because it's a crossover title, right, in terms of the audience, there's so many layers to this. And I'm going to just, this is not a spoiler. It's just a sharing of my experience because I already had this conversation with you earlier this week, but I need to let everyone know that not every book does this to me, but I read it all in one sitting um, just this week curled up on my couch with my lab puppy who refused to leave my lap. (laughs) So I have this big dog and I'm holding the book with my left hand reading it. And I cried. And yes, this book is a, it's a mystery. And you usually don't cry on a mystery. You're kind of on the edge of your seat. 
but I cry because there's so much truth that you're getting at in this book. And when you pull back the layers of what it is and what inspired you to write this, which I'm very, very curious uh, to dive into next, you made me cry because I myself, I feel I'm not alone in this. The entire last year and a half has been nothing but bewilderment. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that you start there and you lead us there by the letter to the reader and just, it's a word that came up just recently before you and I had talked, you know, of how just in a particular moment in time, I was asked, well, how am I doing? I'm like, I, I actually feel like I'm a little bewildered. And that was before I sat down and, and read your book. And so I think this is something we are all experiencing and we're in yet another wave of bewilderment. I don't know if it ever goes away, but can you speak to us about that choice and that focus for this? Because you're doing so much on this first page, but you're laying down the groundwork for the foundation and the fulcrum of the entire conversation you're going to have with us in this book. Yeah. I mean, that's a large question. And bewilderment is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And it's something I talk about when I go and deliver a lecture someplace. Bewilderment is often somewhere in there that I'm doing. And part of it started when I was asked to give a talk about fairy tales. And I have a real strong opinion about why fairy tales are so enduring and why fairy tales and folk tales have lasted for so long and why these stories that people have been telling all over the world for generation after generation really endure. And my theory about it kind of flies in the face of a usual theory, which is a kind of uh, hero journey, right? Everyone wants to be a hero. They overcome these obstacles. And that's why fairy tales and folk tales are so enduring. And I don't think that's why. I think it's actually because they have a premise that is often nonsense, right? Once upon a time, there was a king and he had a daughter and she never laughed. And so he had a contest and whoever could make her laugh was going to marry her, right? Like that is absurd. Every part of it is absurd. And I think when you're a child, the world is so absurd and bewildering and is so confusing that a story that begins with, okay, these are ridiculous things that are not the way your world goes, the, the way this world goes. And you begin to think, okay, I'm in now because it is confusing, because it is bewildering. And what that leads me to is that when you're bewildered in this world, I think that is the moment that you are kind of understanding the world most perfectly, right? When you have this dizzying feeling where you think, I really do not understand what is going on. That is actually your kind of greatest moment of insight and greatest moment of grounding. And it can't last for long. And you begin to say like, okay, I understand this a little bit. And you're wrong then. <laughs> so that's kind of the large idea at the start of this book or at the heart of this book, I should say. And so in order to start there, I thought that, I was going to start with this little moment of story that was the idea, which was Lemony Snicket discovering that he had poison for breakfast, and then immediately pull back and say, okay, this is going to be a very large book that is about these large things, so that immediately you could get kind of the tone of like a little scrap of story, but this large idea almost immediately, and the book keeps on doing that. It goes way in towards a narrative story, and then it pulls out to these kind of large abstract ideas, so... I think that's where I was at when I made the first paragraph. I wanted both those things to be right in the start of the book, a little bit of a story and a big philosophical idea. And you do it so well. So anyone who's listening, obviously they can't see this right now. We will have the audio or the video version too, but so Daniel's hands, you went like this, right? And so I know you play the accordion. I do. I and, do. Yeah. And so it just occurred to me as you were saying that, and actually, as I was reading it, and, and we did touch on this just very, very briefly, your voice, your combination of 26 letters and the way that you bring me in, I'm, I'm a very rhythmic reader. Like I need to hear it. I need to hear the music. That's actually how I write too. And I could hear literally like a metronome when I was reading this. And it's one of the reasons I could read it all in one setting because there's a song in this piece. And when you say you go in, you, you would go in and you would go out. I actually felt like I fell into an accordion when I was reading it, right? And I was like in the folds of that. And so 
you, you take us along the story. This is not giving away anything. It's just the experience you have because of those combination of words, which we're going to get back to where you do this, you're doing that thing. If you're going in and you're going out and you're going in and you're going out and you're reminding us of the larger picture, which I think is really hard to do to keep us kind of going and staying along with the storyline, but then reminding us of the point of the storyline. Right? Yeah. Well, I think I was very lucky to have a very strong musical background and education in childhood. So the accordion, I kind of came to late. I was in college and I wanted to be in a band and it was like a fun, lonely instrument to play. And that I always say, if you play the accordion, you're probably the best accordion player that anybody knows. So kind of, <laughs> opportunities to come and play music came up in a way that if I played the guitar, no one would care. But everyone said like, oh, you play this instrument. Like, let's try that here. And so that has always been fun. But before that, I had a very strict piano teacher for years. And I was in the San Francisco Boys Chorus, which was a very, very heavy, traditional musical education. And it was a way of learning rhythm and learning the way sound is kind of divided and arranged. That's kind of the opposite of how many people come to it, which is kind of instinctual, right? Like, oh, I like this. I like how this sounds. I like how, you know, I like this song. I don't know anything about that. But I know when I hear a song that I like, I know all kinds of, I can hear what is happening rhythmically in it. I can hear what is happening melodically in it. And it's not a greater understanding. It's just a weird, nerdy understanding, honestly. But I think that that's helped me a lot. And then also, I think like a lot of writers, when I was young, I wrote poetry. And then I really, when I was in college, I really wrote a ton of poetry and I really studied poetry. And so to study poetry is to study minutia, is to study these tiny little line choices and breaks and why is this word being used over here? Why is it repeated? Why is it, isn't it repeated? What's going on here? And all that really put me in a micro education of learning how to write this rhythm and these tiny things. Are you I, that way with your reading too? What attracts you? Does this rather have rhythm beyond yeah, subject I mean, matter? I'm interested in sentences. That's what I'm most interested in. And I don't read a ton of traditional nonfiction that is where you might consume it for the subject matter, right? Which is what a lot of people do. A lot of people say, oh, I read this book about Cairo because I want to learn more about Cairo and it's interesting about Cairo or like, I never knew this happened in the 1920s. It's about this thing that happened in the 1920s. I understand that, but what I'm most drawn to is like a little peculiar sentence. I'm more interested in how the language is moving around than I am in the kind of subject matter necessarily. And that's why, I mean, it's interesting to talk about first pages, because when I talk to students of writing, there is often this emphasis on the first page that I say like, oh, because that's what the agent is going to read, or that's what the editor is going to read, you know, that's what the publisher is going to read, so that's got to be good. And I think, yes, but remember, that's how you make your choices too, right. right? Like you're in the bookstore, you're in the library, someone lends you a book or asks, hey, do you want to read this? I liked it. And you're, you're going to open it and you're going to make, you might look at a little summary, but then you're going to open it. You're going to read a few sentences, right? And so to say like, oh gosh, it isn't fair that I have to jam it all into this page for the agent. It's like if the agent is a person reading, you are a person who is reading. You know, every time you go to a bookstore and some cover looks cool and you open it and you read a few sentences and you're like, mm, I don't know, you're doing the exact same thing that an agent is going to do, that an editor is going to do, you know, you're making this judgment based on how something begins. And so it's overlooked in a way because I think there's so much emphasis on plotting and, and subject matter and all this stuff, but it's really like, if you don't like it right at the beginning, if those sentences aren't doing their little tiny little mechanical job, then it's not going to work the way you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking and I'm thinking about children, especially, and remember back in the day, like I'm sure you and I are probably similar in age. Do you remember the, the scratch and sniff stickers? Oh yeah. Well, so when I'm thinking about it, I've never had this uh, metaphor come, but it's happening right now where the first page, like what it has to do, you know, when you get like kind of the dead scratch and sniff, it's like, oh, it's old. So when you try to go back and smell it again, you're like, it's only half of the popcorn. What the hell? Like, where's like the full buttered popcorn that's like really bad for my health, that one, you know? And that essentially, when you have the consciousness and the 
the courtesy to think about that reader, right? And it, it again, you get beyond like, it's not about trying to please an agent. It's really about that agent's a reader and you're inviting them on a journey. And the only sale you have, right? The only tickets available are that combination of the words. And so I want to get into that right now because when you right. talk about the nitty gritty, so this first sentence, right? Your opening sentence, that's what some people just agonize over. And I am curious when you knew that that was going to be your first sentence. And the first sentence is this morning I had poison for breakfast and it stands alone. You just have it. That's it. And then you go into the paragraph, which is now we're going to go in really wide, right? With a really long sentence. This book kind of came together as two ideas that car crashed. And one was the kind of larger philosophical musing, which is in a bunch of Snicket books, there's a lot of digressions, but I thought, what if I really put the digressions in the foreground of a book? What would that be like? But then the other was this tiny little story idea of having poison for breakfast, which felt very snickety and it's like a little Victorian, but also a little noir, which is kind of my sweet spot and Snicket's sweet spot. And so I think I nailed that opening sentence pretty early. Yeah. I just began to think poison for breakfast and I thought the book would be called poison for breakfast. And then this morning I had poison for breakfast seems like a great way to start. It has a little startle in it. There's something deadpan about the extraneous information, right? Like this morning, there's something about that that seems silly. It seems like a joke. I think it's pretty difficult not to want more from a sentence like that, from a sentence that just says something that's startling. And I think you want to move on. Someone yeah. that I know who edits a literary magazine, I went to pick him up at his office once and I just saw like his pile, like the pile of submissions. And I always knew, of course, that there was a big pile of submissions, but something about seeing it was just like, ooh. <laughs> and I said, how do you do this? Like how in the world do you weed all this stuff and begin to figure out what you want to publish? And he said, I look for a consistent rate of surprise. Mm. And I thought that was a great answer. I think this morning I had poison for breakfast. There's a surprise in there. And I think you just want that surprise more. And the second sentence, which begins, this book is about bewilderment, is also a surprise. Because instead of saying, this morning I had poison for breakfast, you know, someone put some arsenic in my coffee or whatever it is, whatever the rest of the story would be, immediately we, we zoom back to this weird thing. And I think that's good for a consistent rate of surprise that you have that kind of zip. And again, for me, that came from poetry. Like poetry is great with the startling word. It gets its fingers in you that way. You think, oh, I want to do it. And I think poetry, because it's so micro, you can really, if you, there's a poem that you like, you can begin to look at the pacing of it. You can look at the surprise of it. You can look at what you like. And it, for me, it is similar to the editor, this consistent rate of surprise. So I think like what I hear this morning had poison for breakfast. It has, there's that surprise right there. Poison. It's good. Yeah. And then also you're addressing us, right? That's another choice in here. You use the you a lot. And again, it feels like it's a courtesy. I feel you're not talking at me. You're opening up something for me. Yeah. I think that first person makes it a little easier to be compelling, I think if you choose first person, you have a little bit automatically of an edge from like a third person distant point of view. Right. Right. Because if you say one morning a man had poison for breakfast, there's a little bit of like, you better tell us who this man is. You better make sure that I care about who this guy is. That's right. And so that's why a lot of very traditional third person opening in sentences say, one morning, you know, Loretta Parsons, who lived in Milwaukee with her family and worked as a secretary, had poison for breakfast. Because you want to put that where you think, oh, she has a family. I hope she, you know, I hope she gets over this poison. You have to pack a lot of information into that is often the feeling with the third person. And I think with the first person, you can get this, you have a tiny bit of an edge. It's not automatic or anything, but in, in terms of making it compelling, I think you can often do it. I think when you start with third person narration, you want to figure out how you're going to bridge a little bit of that distance because it's going to be a distant point of view, but you want that conversation with the reader. You want that compulsion. Right. And by doing that, you then have to backfill, right? So that's when you get those details that add in, but the first person enables you to do it with such economy. We get there, that, immedi yeah. that immediacy and intimacy is like, it happens. 
before we go on to that, I just want to read the next thing. This next paragraph is a promise, right? You say everything that happens in this book is true. And yeah. that's something else that I think is wonderful. But in the other podcast episodes, a lot of these guests and the guest authors are talking about, you know, a promise. Tom Barbash talked about it when I had a chance to interview him. And you really are kind of every word that goes into these, you know, grabbing and hooking the reader, right? You're, you're kind of building this promise, but here it's a direct one. And you say, everything that happens in this book is true. And then immediately as a reader, I go, oh, really? Okay. Exactly. Right. Right. It's the challenge, right? And you knew exactly what you're going to do, right? That possibly be the case, particularly because you already know that it begins with this morning, I had poison for breakfast. Right. Right. Absolutely. And just rhythmically, then what you're doing, we start with that sentence. It's like, boom. And then we go into, you open it up with bewilderment. It's the four syllable word, right? It's also, it's fun. And then you have that element of surprise that you're bringing in there. Now you get into the promise, which is raising a question for me in this third paragraph. And now we get into your lyricism. We get into the rhythm. There's this beautiful rhythm, but it's happening too, even in the end of that second paragraph where you say, of course, I don't know what is happening, or I wouldn't have eaten poison for breakfast. We start to hear the song. There's this repetition that happens, and it happens throughout the entire story, right? Which is very snicket, but it's like specifically for this book. And what pulls me through is I'm hooked on the music. Like there is so much music. I don't know if you were trying that or not, but that's how I was experiencing it. I mean, it. I read all my stuff out loud when I'm working on it. As I said, music and poetry have always been really important to me. So I think I'm drawn to that too. I think the transition from that second paragraph to the third one that says the second paragraph ends with, of course, I don't know what is happening. And then the next one begins with everything that happens in this book is true. <laughs> So the guy says, like, I have no idea what is going on in the world. And then and then starts the next paragraph is like, I'm very certain. I'm going to show you this is 100% factual. And that's just a great tug of war of how believable the narrator is. And also, particularly for young people, I think that's a very familiar voice of authority. Right. Right. Which is you seem like a fool and yet you're in charge. Right. This is so much of childhood. Right. It's kind of the old if you know so much about careers, why are you a career counselor? (laughs) (laughs) so I like that too because it harkens to a kind of unspoken truth that children know right which is we are being lied to all the time yeah yeah snicket books I always say when people say what age should people start reading lemony snicket I always say it's at the arrival of irony and some people it never comes (laughs) but if you're a child and you get the kind of joke of this book is terrible and you don't want to read it. And you say like, Oh, but I do want to read it. And you know that I do want to read it. That right. That's the arrival of irony. That's the arrival of understanding that the literal meaning is not for it. And many children, I've seen this a bunch of times, they look at a Snicket book and it says like, this is a dreadful book. And they say like, Oh, well then I don't want it. Why would I want a dreadful book? And it's because irony hasn't hit them yet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's adults for whom irony is not hit, certainly about the Snicket books. You know? <laughs> in, in general, right? Yeah, or yeah, or anything else. And so I think that kind of tug of that there's the rhythm of bewilderment and there's the rhythm of authority that are going on both at the same time. And I think yeah. that's it interesting, I hope. Yeah, well, you have all that going on, right? And then there's so many times in the book where I've just laughed out loud because of, because of the choices, right? There's so many choices you could have when you're listing things. The first list that we get into here when you talk is, you know, the poison in the poems, right? We get that. We get the alliteration, the poison in the poems, the deadly cactus and the hypnotic musician, the chicken and the egg and the fatal finale, a phrase which here means there is death at the end of the story, right? And even when you read it, you read it exactly with your, you know how sometimes you hear an author read their own work and you're like, oh, but you missed your own rhythms. Like, ah, how could you do that? You know? And so when you read it, I was like, it's exactly how I heard it, exactly how I heard it. And it made it so fun for me. And then when you go into the list, right? I know people don't have a book in front of them right now, but when you get into the list of what you made for breakfast and how in your egg perfectly prepared, it reads like a poem on the page. And then it keeps showing up like that throughout the book. 
and it becomes part of the story, which we can yeah. It's good for a mystery. I mean, this is a peculiar kind of mystery, but I think it's still a mystery story at its heart. And what I always think about with mysteries is that you want to feel that you were like just four seconds behind figuring it out, behind the detective who's figuring out, right? If it comes from nowhere, which is more like how actual crime is, right? Like right. who killed this person? You don't know. Another person you don't know. And it's like, who cares about that? No one wants that. And so a good mystery writer shows you everything and you know you're supposed to notice it, but you haven't quite added it up. And so then when the detective says, and that's how the scarf got on the floor because you were struggling, you were like, oh, I knew there was something about this. I, I almost had that. Even though you didn't almost have it. You knew about the scarf and you knew someone was murdered and you didn't really have it, but you thought you did. And so the list of items for breakfast is laid on the page like a poem because I, because I wanted people to kind of get the rhythm of that of like, why there's something in the breakfast here, right? That's the source of the mystery. And I want to keep looking at it and I want to keep thinking about it. So that was fun for me. Yeah. And so one of the things too, that the book goes into, and it doesn't destroy the plot at all, is that this is as much of a meditation on bewilderment, right, which all of us experience, it doesn't matter what age. And I think last year in particular, that word, that four syllable word, we were living and breathing it every second of the day, Yeah, as was everyone around the world, you know, it wasn't just in certain areas, everyone was experiencing bewilderment. And you're able to also impart, and I can say this personally because obviously I love books and I'm a writer, but when the libraries were closed, that's when my world, like my own personal, well, how am I going to, how, what, like that, that was church for me. Like it's, yeah. it's closed. So what the heck, you know? And I remember just having to impart that news to my daughter, like we can't go to the library, at least for now. It was such a strange, like, are there going to be frogs falling from the sky? Is it going to be one of those movies, you know? Yeah. And, and so you capture it. And one of the things that I also love for those people who are listening and who are writers or readers themselves, this is a book that's as much of a love letter to writing and to libraries and to books that help us understand our constant state of bewilderment. Just to be alive is to be bewildered, right? You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As the author of four novels and a writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much. Hook the reader. So I thought to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. I started the podcast this past spring, and after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. Writing takes courage, and courage needs a community. So I'm opening up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of Page One's master storytellers. I'm so excited about this. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered. And Page One exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both a known and unknown creative talent. Maybe that's you. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpain.com backslash community. That's Holly Lynn Payne, H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E.com backslash community. And now back to the show. Yeah, it's very confusing. We've been in confusing times and we're still in confusing times. And I think part of what a huge event like a pandemic does is it forces you to look at many things that you didn't have to look at before. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the closing of the library is a great example, right? It's like... If you were asked randomly, like, can you live without a library? The answer is like, of course you could live without a library, right? Many people do, you know? And then when it's like, oh, well here, it turns out this was a big part of your life. Yeah. And so how about that? Do you want to think about that, about how kind of addicted and beholden you've become to this institution that it turns out they can just turn off the lights and lock it. And right now when we're having this conversation, it's like the Delta variant is all kind of the fear 
and it makes you think about the risks that you take. Yeah. That's what it makes me think about anyway. And it's like, oh, we can't risk this. We shouldn't. This is risky. What if we get this? This is risky. And it just says like, well, to review, you've probably been in an automobile before, right? Which is very deadly. Right. Can you really say that every time you got into an automobile, it was like a matter of life or death and it was super crucial that you be in an automobile for it? Or did you just sometimes drive someplace because you wanted to, or, you know, you could have walked or you could have bicycled or you could have whatever, but you just decided to. And that was really risky behavior. Yeah. Right? It's really dangerous to be in a car. And yet you kind of made your peace with it. And now when there's like a new thing that says like, well, is it necessary for you to fly? And you think, well, like, it isn't. But on the other hand, I'm driving around all the time and that's dangerous, you know, and you try to do these equations in your head. And of course they don't work out because they're not equations. They're the complete bewilderment of life on earth. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's exactly what this whole experience is and what it gives you. And one of the reasons I cried because I was like, yes, finally, someone nailed this. Someone nailed the experience that I've just had. Oh my God. And I imagine many, many, many other people might have the same reaction. I know that we're running up against the clock here on the episode, and I want to get into a book that you currently are reading, and I want to get into Hillary's page one on boobs. But I just want to point out one thing in the book. It's chapter six, and you talk about the rules for writing a book. And the first is regularly to add the element of surprise, which you go back to your first page is what we talk about. So kind of using that as a segue, what are you reading right now? Just randomly. I know we talked about this earlier, but would you share maybe a first paragraph of something that you're reading? Yeah, I'm a little torn because we end up talking a little bit about poetry. And and so I'm reading a book of poetry, but I'm also reading, I'm actually rereading a novel that I love. And so the novel has like a great paragraph, but uh poetry is uh, why don't we do both why don't we do both both. yeah this is not an either or it's a both and yeah and so I'm reading John Ashbery a great poet died fairly recently and people have been speculating on what he might have left behind in terms of verse and I'm sure that he's left behind more than this but what was a really surprising and delightful thing that I'm reading now is that he left behind some very long unfinished poems And so he's a weird poet (laughs) and you're not always sure what you're going to get out of him. And he is the king of surprising lines for sure. And so I'm just going to find a little bit of this because it's just been wonderful to read these long poems that are kind of circling enormous ideas that have all of John Ashbery's goofy language to it. This is great. Uh, This could be like a game that you play with kids of, like the I Ching, like let's find the most surprising line and just go, boom, open it up and then say when. (laughs) So this is from John Ashbery. The name of the book is Parallel Movement of the Hands. Parallel Movement of the Hands, which is already intriguing. (laughs) And this first long poem in the book is called The History of Photography, which is a great title for a poem because it kind of has that everything in this book is true feeling where you think the history of photography, how can a poem be the history of photography? (laughs) So I'll just read this tiny little stanza that is in it. The earliest known film of someone slipping on a banana peel is lost in the secreted mists of time while apples hang heavy on the shores of Lake Ontario, waiting for that prime moment of sharpness in the air, the coming of true reality which shall brook no gainsaying, the old languid tale of laundry hanging, waiting to be sprinkled and ironed so that some sort of maze of sense may be navigated, then folded and put away like a deck chair. And it's like, you can count the surprises there. And for people who are listening who said, wait a minute, I lost complete track of that and it made me space out a little bit. And what is going on? The answer is precisely. Like he's taking you to this part of your mind where you're kind of whirling around and you get lost and then he yanks you back into reality, right? You get this like laundry hanging, waiting to be sprinkled and ironed. And you think, oh, I'm here, I'm back. I I can see some laundry in my head. And then he goes, so that some sort of maze of sense may be navigated. And you think, what? Then folded and put away like a deck chair. And you're like, oh, I'm back up. He ended with that specific, I'm back someplace. I just love the kind of waxing and waning of the sense that is in the John Ashbery. It's just great. 
that's great. Thank you for sharing that one. Yeah. And that's an example, I think, where poetry is often, people are often intimidated by poetry. They don't know what to read. If they don't understand it, they feel stupid. And I just think this is a great parallel movement of the hands by John Ashbery is a great book to pick up and put by your bed and read three lines before you go to sleep. They're going to twist into your dreams. You're going to have a wonderful time. And don't sweat the significance in terms of the work of poetry. Just let the words kind of poke you a little bit. And there's a million other poets you could do besides John Ashbery. He's kind of patrician and canonized. And so there's a million people you can find. But the peculiar language of poetry, I think, is a great thing to be your companion as you're working. And if you're a writer and you're working on something and you're not reading some poetry, I think you're missing out on an opportunity to have that part of your brain get tickled. Oh, I should read more poetry, but I don't know how. You know, and there's an app that'll deliver a poem to your phone every day. Poetry Magazine is a great thing to subscribe to that'll just throw a bunch of poets at you and the ones that you like, you can go do. But even if you have some old Norton anthology of poetry that's been on your shelf since you went to college, take it down, blow some dust off it, open a page, find these little peculiar words. It's a great, great way to begin. No, I totally agree. And way back in the day when the writer's almanac, I was so sad when that started to kind of phase away. That was my landing page. And I didn't look at any news. I went straight to the writer's almanac and I read the poem of the day. And that was my vitamin P because if you're a rhythmic writer, that that's the language, that's where you get the music, you know? So my landing page is the poetry foundation, which will also give you a poem a day and a little like essay about a poet, if you want it. Oh, that's great. That's great. And so you said you were also reading a novel that the first paragraph grabbed you. Yeah. So I'm rereading it, actually. I read it several times. It's by Catherine Davis. It's called The Thin Place. And I've taught this paragraph before. She, Catherine Davis is a super interesting writer. You never know what is going to come out of her pen. There were three girlfriends, and they were walking down a trail that led to a lake. One small and plump, one pretty and medium-sized, one not so pretty and tall. This was in the early years of the 21st century, the unspeakable having happened so many times, everyone was still in shock, still reeling from what they'd seen, what they'd done or failed to do. The dead souls no longer wore gowns. They'd gotten loose, broadcasting their immense soundless cord through the precincts of the living. Whoa. Oh, yeah start with this like it feels like kind of little women right you get these peculiar very short descriptions of each woman right that's like size and shape which is feels a little anatomical or a little <laughs> insulting or you know you're like I'm not sure that isn't what I wanted and then you move into this it's the early years of the 21st century and you think okay we're uh, I'm situated again And then it just starts saying the unspeakable having happened, still reeling. Like, it's like, okay, you seem a little upset. What happened to the three girls? I don't understand. Like, now we're in the 21st century. And then you get this crazy, the dead souls no longer wore gowns, right? It's like two sentences later, two sentences after their three girlfriends and they were walking down a trail that led to a lake, right? Which is a super situated sentence. Yeah. And you get these descriptions, you're like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Then you get a few things about the century, and you're like, I'm a little alarmed. And then you get this, the dead souls no longer wore gowns. No longer. Yeah. Right? And you're, you're trying to play catch up with, like, the tense of that sentence. They no longer wore gowns. So they were wearing gowns? Wait, 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 wait. And then she leads you to this, they'd gotten loose, casting their immense soulless cord through the precincts of the living. Right. I mean, one of the things that I love about Catherine Davis is that she does not wait for you to catch up. You know, she says, like, do you get it? There's three people. This book is going to be super weird. Dead souls are lying around. Are you ready? Ready? And you're like, OK, I'm, I'm here. I'm trying to. And just that off balance, that kind of sense of someone running ahead of you is a great way to compel someone. Right. It's not yeah. the relationship you want with a reader, but this thing about like, I've just given you some stuff and now I'm running away. And you're like, I got to gather this up and I got to run after you. It's a wonderful right. Well, and she spooks you, right? You're spooked. And because she mentions the lake and I'm like, right. ooh, okay. At the beginning of the sentence, you think, oh, it's a hike. And by the end of it, you think, I don't think you're going to come back from this lake. I try to get my wife to do this all the time. Like I saw a movie recently and then I said to her, like, you have to see this. 
But I, what I wanted to do was like pause it at the first frame, you know, just at the like Warner Brothers frame, so just be like, I don't want you to know anything. I don't want you to know who's in it. I don't want you to know what's going to happen. I don't want you to see the trailer. I just want you to have this experience of this movie. And that feels the same way to me because you get that like jolt of beautiful surprise that you really don't know where you are. It's great. I mean, I, I you know, and Bravo, right? 26 letters. She had the same 26 letters that you have. And that's what's extraordinary about this whole experience writing. Having said that, we're going to invite Hillary in and we're going to have Hillary share the first page of her book, Boobs, which definitely has elements of surprise and bewilderment. So it brings it all together. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us today and having the courage to submit your first page of Boobs. <laughs> thank you. I know. Well, I am a little nervous after listening to Daniel and hearing his point of view and the surprises and peculiar words and where his writing sounds like poetry and does have that beat, but I am going to just soak up the fact that I get to have an audience with a seasoned pro. <laughs> yeah. Well, and before that, it's your turn. You get to read yeah. your first page. Okay. All right. Here, here I go. Boobs. The second time around. I've been haunted by my boobs my whole life. They were too big for my frame, and I spent most of my life hiding behind them, carefully chosen shirts to minimize their size. As a collegiate runner, I remember standing on the starting line in my singlet, waiting for the gun to go off, thinking, why do my boobs have to be so big? I glanced at all the runners lined up next to me who barely needed a bra, while I had two. Then, four years ago on St. Patrick's Day, I got my boobs lopped off, not because I wanted to run faster, because I needed to save my life. I don't miss my boobs. I was more nervous than sad to lose them. The actual surgery scared me. It was a nipple sparing double mastectomy where breast tissue got scooped out like the sticky insides of a pumpkin and the nerve ending severed. The double mastectomy with 86 any cancer still lingering despite the 29 radiation treatments, 14 rounds of chemo and previous partial mastectomy. I wanted the surgery to be a celebration not another maudlin event where people met me with sad eyes. So my friend, Matt, who was also my anesthesiologist, helped me rally my surgical team for a pre-off send off to my boobs. Standing under the bright lights of the operating room, my breast surgeon and plastic surgeon exchanged nervous laughter behind their masks, both introverts and well out of their comfort zone. Matt walked in, hoisting a boom box on his shoulder in full scrubs, my husband bobbed up and down, punching the air to the beat of the music. The surgery team slowly started to sway and move, raising their hands back and forth above their heads to the Black Eyed Peas party anthem, I got a feeling. It was an awkward and honest celebration, the most unlikely of places and circumstances. When I was done, I lay on the cold operating table looking into the blue eyes of my surgeon, who I called Dr. McDreamy, wondering if he'd find the shamrocks I'd drawn on each boob with a green Sharpie. Amusing. Now in their place, I have two lumpy and rippled silicon textured implants masquerading as boobs. They look a little Frankensteinish with scars down the middle and a half circle underneath, cupping each breast from edge to edge. My left nipple is near the top of my chest and my right nipple is in the middle. When I'm cold, it looks like I'm pointing in two directions. When I lay down, my left boob shifts up. My nipple could be mistaken for a raisin on my shoulder blade. They don't look like they belong to me. Like I have two strangers squatting on my chest as if it's an old abandoned house. Wow. Yep, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we were talking a little before we started recording. My sister who I'm very close to is in the middle of a breast cancer battle now. And so I don't know what extent I can be objective about this because I feel in the thick of precisely this kind of thing. So it feels both familiar and opaque in that it's something that I will never know. Even if I develop breast cancer, I won't have a relationship with my breasts that is anything I think like any woman has with her breasts. But I really like the way this page keeps going to different places and kind of just when you think it's not, just when you think maybe it is just going to keep on going to places and you don't know where they are, 
that it circles back. I think that last sentence, it's like I have two strangers squatting on my chest as if it's an old abandoned house. And the way that harkens back to the first sentence, I've been haunted by my booze my whole life. Like that you have this like haunting, like now you're, now you're in the haunting of it, right? That you start with this kind of memory and the memory is very specific. So we get right to the, to the racetrack. I don't know any of the terminology of any sport <laughs> whatsoever. So I'm going to just try to wing it. But you're at this moment of collegiate running. You feel the two bras. Then they're gone. Then you have this celebration and you describe it in such a way that you feel, I mean, you say awkward and honest and that's what it feels like. The kind of giddiness of the boombox and the pop song you're not fooled for a minute that that was a happy time, right? You just, you have this like, well, it's weird and you're trying to do something and that you hope it makes you feel better. And then you get to this dislocation of the post-surgery feeling. And then you end on this, like, like there's two strangers here and they're haunting me. It's almost like there's like a triple haunting going on because you have the boobs and then you have the strangers that are, and then it's the haunting of your absence. And it's like, you just really get into the thick of it. So I think it's very artfully done. And I mean, I've been haunted by my boobs. My whole life is just like a great sentence. I think you found the right word, right? Because breast, I think feels very formal. It's as formal as you're going to, as you can get when you're saying the word breast. I think if you said knockers or something, that it would feel jokey and sexual. And so you get this boob, which is like an insulting word. It's a weird word in the mouth. Phonetically, I think it's a weird word. And it has that informality. And yet, you know, it's masking seriousness. I think it's great. I really like the first paragraph. I really like feeling in the moment. I think it's a surprising way, certainly for a male reader. You think it's going to be about adolescence or about sexuality or about the kind of million ways that that part of the body can be objectified and gazed at. There is no, like no woman is like, yep, my breasts developed normally. And I felt not at all self-conscious during my adolescence. Yeah. But it's like, if it happened in a hurry, if it happened gradually, if you went in at a big place, if you went in at a small place, <laughs> like no one, everyone's like, no, it was a disaster. My way was the worst, right? <laughs> my way is the way that I felt worst about it. And then, but you don't go to any of those places. You go to athleticism, which is a strange, um, I think it's an unexpected place to go. And I like you feel like you feel that like before the gun goes off, which is exactly what you want in the opening paragraph, I think, of a book is like to feel that the gun hasn't gone off yet, right? And then you're tensed, ready for this race. And then you think the next paragraph is going to be like, and off we went. And by the second mile, I needed this. And instead you're in a whole different place. I like that the specific details that pop up have that, the kind of curious randomness of memory, right? It's like on St. Patrick's Day, right? If it were a novel, you'd say, okay, why are you going to have her have her double mastectomy on St. Patrick's Day? Is this a Catholic book? Yeah. (laughs) What are we doing here? But instead, because it's true, you have this thing about like, yep, that's how I know it. You know, people... (laughs) And I mean, the specificity of time with memory is always interesting. You know, when someone says, was that 18 years ago or 17 years ago? Or what? And I would say like, I remember my wife was pregnant. So I know exactly when it was, you know, or just like, it was really hot that day. So it, it was not in November, whatever it was. I love like the double mastectomy with 86 any cancer still lingering despite the 29 t- treatments, 14 rounds of chemo. It's like, I begin to have like a chalkboard in my head that starts with 86, which is of course not a number. It's just a slang term. But like I, the 86 makes me like, okay, well, 86 and then there's 29 and 14. I'm like, I'm counting <laughs> my thumbs here. I'm not sure what this adds up to, which is exactly that kind of numerical panic of any kind of medical ordeal. There's always this notion, like the doctors were like, I'm going to give you all this information to kind of help you. And it's like, but the information is bewildering and you don't know anything about it. Yeah. Right. It's like 29 radiation treatments. Would 28 have been enough? Is And it is like, it's the frustration and heartbreak. And certainly I'm feeling it now in my family of like that fallacy that kind of medical knowledge will give you power. That's the whole thing that they want to teach you, right? That the doctor's going to sit you down and tell you these things. And you think like, yeah, but I didn't go to medical school. How's it going to help? Like, I don't really know what radiation is. And I think all of us all around the world are having that now about the pandemic. It's like, I never knew what a vaccine was. 
And it was like a thing and they put it in your arm and then you didn't get whatever the thing was. And so they're like, there's still a problem after a vaccine. I was like, oh, but. I got the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I got like the magic, isn't it like a shield that protects you <laughs> from the virus? Isn't that what a vaccine is? It's like a suit of armor, but you can't see it. You know, they're like, no, some people get it anyway. You're like, I don't want to hear that. That's not good. Why are you telling me that information? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I want to thank both of you for sharing what you shared today and as a celebration for books in general and stories that enable us to navigate the eternal heartbreak of what is a constant state of being human, which is the state of bewilderment. And it really brings it all full circle because cancer and going through it is got to be one daily dose of bewilderment. And thank you for having the courage to share this and also for putting it down on paper and anyone who's going through this, including Danielle's sister right now, maybe can find comfort in the fact that they're not alone in their bewilderment. And I think that's the whole point of books. And that's the whole power of literature is that it helps us feel less alone, helps us see that we're not the only ones suffering, that it's unfortunately a joint venture, but look, we found ways to laugh about it too, because there's an absurdity in the consistency and the constants of bewilderment. I think it's more than that in Hillary's book. I think that because there's so many narratives that are placed upon medical experience, right? And there's so much redemption or like you suffer, but then it's okay. So now there's a suffering time and then there's the okay time. And I think it does a lot of damage to people, honestly, yeah. those kind of narratives because if you're not a brave camper, if you're not feeling better than you did feel the day before, then you feel like a failure to this narrative that they put on you. And you're in trouble enough without any narrative put on you. Yeah. And then to have a narrative that feels false to you, that feels like it's something you can't live up to, is just like triply painful. We were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. And yeah. I think in breast cancer in particular, there's this narrative of like, we've made so much progress and there's such good survival rates. So it's just like a thing that happens to you and then it's over. Like I'll check in with you in a little bit and then you'll be fine. Like I set cupcakes when I heard and now you should be fine. Right. And that it's such a horrible thing. And I think that this page really captures the kind of senselessness and the so many directions that you're going. We didn't even talk about the last paragraph with the nipples facing different ways and going different places, but it just, that's what it, it feels like that experience feels that. And so I'm grateful to see this story and progress that is really capturing what's so bewildering about it and that people can read this, whether they're going through it or not, and really understand what a strange and senseless experience it can be rather than like, what a brave narrative of someone who like really faced something. Yeah, I so appreciate that. And, and, you know, in thinking of your sister, you kind of just summed up, it's this big elephant in this pink room for her, she and I, of everyone, you know, you're going to fight this. This is a great battle. You can do that. You know, you're on this train. Sometimes you just want to sit and cry, or you, maybe you don't want to behave like they expect you to, especially in some of these commercials for these drugs, everyone looks so happy. And it's, your sister wasn't initially supposed to have the hardest chemo ever. And now she is, and maybe yeah. it'll change. And so there's so much uncertainty still with her treatment path because things come up. And bravery implies a choice. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. like bravery is like skydiving. Like, I don't know if I'm brave enough for that. <laughs> I am. I'm going to choose it, you know? But this is more like being pushed out of an airplane. You're like, look at you, you're brave. And it's like, yeah, what choice do I have? You push me out of an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe it's- Here I am out in the air. Like, it's not bravery. You do. You did it to me. Cancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's just the fact that like you're surviving right? Like people mistake surviving for strength all the time. And it's like, actually, we're just trying to get by, right? Yeah. And, and that's real. And you capture that. Um, so please keep writing. Please finish this. Yeah. <laughs> and Daniel, I, I like instinctively, I printed it out. And then I was like, page two, wait a minute. This is <laughs> Where's page two? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, we get, we get to yeah. leave everyone hanging on, on page one. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, Hillary, for thank you, me. Holly. 
And uh, to be continued, as always, may we enjoy the book we're reading and please, please keep writing, Hillary. And Daniel, I can't wait for others to discover poison for breakfast. Thank you. I'm going to keep writing too. Not yeah. the- <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. May we all actually maybe meet in person someday soon. That would be great. Sounds great. All right. I need to get out of the house. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks, you guys. Bye. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like page one, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love too. If you want to learn more about my writing coaching or books, you can find me at hollylynnpain.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hollylynnpain. That's H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E, hollylynnpain.com. Thank you.